Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. We had have some technical difficulties, but we're, we're sort of back and running. Uh, Paul's secondary missionary journey. Part one was last week. We're going to hit part two of this week and, and finish it up. His secondary missionary journey is much more sprawling and uh, covers a lot more territory than the first one. The first one with Paul and Barnabas, they're kind of going to areas that they were familiar with. Um, they go to Cyprus because Barnabas is from Cyprus. They go to the area uh, west of Tarsus, Galatia, and Amphip- uh, not Amphipolis, Antioch, because those would have been areas that at least were within uh, the kind of the range of where Paul uh, lived and grew up, even if he hadn't been to those areas before. But the second missionary journey is just it's much, much bigger. It goes way beyond the bounds, and it's really kicked off by that Jerusalem council and by that clear decree that Jews and Gentiles both come to salvation through faith in Jesus. This is all by God's grace, and it does not come about from following the law of Moses, circumcision, or any of that, it is solely by grace through faith in Jesus. And that really seems to have emboldened the missionary outreach that we really need to go. Um, Remember, at the beginning of this uh, book, Jesus said this message would go to the ends of the earth, and Paul, at least for his part, makes sure that that commission is fulfilled. So last week, we began kind of the ground half of things um, as they, as he covered all the way. This is Asia and called Asia Minor, uh, reached all the way across and then caught a sailboat and went across from Troas into Philippi. And Philippi, we have a lot of stories from Philippi. We talked about three different places or people that received the gospel, and they were very different kinds of people. Lydia, that upper-class businesswoman, this slave who was possessed by this evil spirit, and then the jailer there in Philippi. And all three of them seemed to hear and be affected by the message, the ministry of Paul, and come to be saved. But there's also trouble there at Philippi, just as in so many of the other cities before. This common theme recurs, and so Paul is going to have to get out of town. Um, we kind of already knew that because he was put in jail, but he was freed. There was this great earthquake that was part of his uh, the conversion of this Philippian uh, jailer. But Paul has to get out of town. The heat is, is too much. But it seems as Paul is, is moving along that he, he still is on a mission. He, he's not like going to head back home. Okay, we kind of reached the breaking point. He wants to keep going. And so from Philippi, this is still the area that is known as Macedonia. Greece is, is south and west. But 
it's a Greek-speaking area, um, so it's, it's kind of common in that way. From Philippi, he's going to go down to Thessalonica and Berea, these two cities. That begins chapter 17 of Acts. Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, and it's a broken record by now. Where do they go first? They go to the synagogue. They try to meet fellow Jews and bring them that message. Specifically in Thessalonica, we learn that when Paul was there on the Sabbath, he was there for three Sabbath days. So that means he was there almost a month, right? And what is he trying to do during those Sabbath teaching times? He is reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So one of the big stumbling blocks, as Paul would encounter when he is bringing this message to Jews, is basically everybody understands the Messiah is something that they are all waiting for, the Christ. This is all part of Old Testament theology. They're all looking this direction for the fulfillment of that promise. But there were a lot of different thoughts about what this Messiah would be, and it seems that the popular idea about the Messiah is that he is a powerful ruler, that he is the son of David, so he will be a king, a king like David, powerful and, you know, get rid of all of the heathens, the Gentiles, and all of that. And so the big stumbling block that Paul is going to have when he comes and proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah is that their understanding of the Messiah and then Paul says, you know, he was crucified and he, you know, he was not received by the Jews, but rejected and rose again on the third day. That does not compute. That's not the Messiah that we are looking for. And so Paul has his work cut out for him among the Jews to try to take a step back and say, okay, you have a lot of different thoughts about the Messiah. There's a lot of different places in Scripture that you could turn to and try to, you know, okay, the Messiah is going to be this and that and this kind of... No. Paul wants to show, first and foremost, that, that in the Scriptures, the Messiah is one who will suffer and die and rise again on the third day. Because if he can make that jump, then to say here... Let me tell you about this Jesus. He did all of these things. It's a much easier jump in their theological understanding. Like, oh yeah, I see now. Yes, this is exactly where God was leading us. This is the teaching of God's word that the Messiah would be this suffering servant. Oh yeah, I, I kind of get it. And Paul doesn't, uh, Luke doesn't give us, you know, all of the details of um, Paul's teachings here. You know, what, what verses specifically is he looking at? Where is he going with this? But you can kind of figure out from Jesus's ministry, he talked about this too. 
this is a big turning point in, in the Gospels. After his transfiguration, uh, he teaches his disciples, it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and die, but on the third day to rise again. And that's when we have some of the conflict that he had among his disciples, where Peter said, you know, over my dead body, is this going to happen, that you would suffer and die, that you would be rejected by the chief priests and the leaders? That's not the Messiah that I signed up for. You kind of see that working out there uh, in Jesus's own ministry. So it made sense that Paul would have to encounter this too. But some of the places that he can turn to, obviously in Isaiah, they're called the, the suffering servant songs that talk about the Messiah being despised, rejected by his stripes, we are healed. You can go to the account of, of Jonah, uh, that he was in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights, and then he is spat back up, um, kind of pointing to God's ways of salvation. Uh, Jesus specifically pointed that out in one of his encounters with some of the hostile groups against him. We want a sign. We want a sign. And he said, there's not going to be any sign except the sign of Jonah. Um, and that actually was pointing forward, I think, to that ultimate sign of Jesus's death and then resurrection. So he kind of points to that as well. Um, but the big thing is he has to make that shift. Otherwise, when he announces Jesus as the Messiah, they would reject it, not necessarily because they reject Jesus, but because that definition of the Messiah that Paul is trying to, to show them they weren't on the same page and, and they might have rejected it. So here at Thessalonica, he's, he's getting into that nitty gritty. And then once he explains that the scriptures do tell us that the Messiah is going to suffer and die and rise again, then boom, this Jesus, that is the Christ. So some of them were persuaded and they did join Paul and Silas, just like at other places. So also did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Uh, Luke, again, throughout his gospel and here in the book of Acts, he has done a good job of showing that the gospel is for all people. Um, the women in the Gospels are highlighted a little bit in Luke's Gospel are, are highlighted a little bit more than they are in some of the other Gospels. The poor especially are highlighted in Luke's Gospel. And in the book of Acts, we find those themes kind of continue. We've heard a little bit about the early church's ministry to the poor, how they share all of their belongings to make sure that the poor have enough. And here, well, we had it in Philippi. Two of the three people that were talked about who converted were women. And here in Thessalonica as well, women are a part of those who hear the gospel and are accepted. Um, but it's also noteworthy for Luke to note that these are leading women. So these, these were not just the regular, ordinary women. These were probably more educated women, more upper class, more powerful, have more influence, which will be a help later on uh, when the 
apostles or other disciples might need a little bit more protection when they need a place to host them because they're going to get kicked out of the synagogues. They have people that will be able to do that. And that was true of Jesus's own ministry here about uh, some of the, the, the women that, that follow him around and are able to do some of those things um, that we talk about cooking. You know, may, maybe the men weren't very good at, at serving a meal for them and providing for them. But when they have some of those connections, the women say, all right, you're in the city. We'll get things together. You guys come and we'll, you know, we'll eat together and we'll listen to Jesus, Mary and Martha even. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The, the entire Old Testament. Yep. And in, in, in this time, they have it both in Hebrew, but also in Greek the Septuagint. So here, especially when we're right on the doorstep of, of Greece, uh, it's quite likely that they were using the Septuagint for all of this because Hebrew as a language, that was something that did not stick. Uh, when they would read the Bible in Hebrew, they would have Aramaic. That was the more common language, Aramaic explanations, because they wouldn't always understand, not just theologically, but like, I don't understand all of those words. Like if you read today, the King James Bible, you're like, I didn't understand all of those words. I need somebody else to tell me what, what it says. Um, so yeah, same kind of thing. We don't know which, which translation they were using at this particular place, but I would say probably the Septuagint because you're, you're among that language. It's, it's the common tongue. But regardless of what language it is, in all of the Old Testament, he's looking for this proof, this proof that the, the Messiah was going to suffer and was going to rise again because, boom, that's exactly what Jesus fulfills. Um, the Jews are jealous. Again, a common theme. And so what do they do? They create a mob. It's Again and again and again, this happens. This time, they attack the house of Jason. That seems to have been where Paul and Silas must have been staying um, as they spent this month or so there. But when they went to the house of Jason, uh, Paul and Silas weren't there. They couldn't find them, so they do the next best thing. They drag Jason himself and some of the other brothers, some of the other Christians, because it's kind of guilt by association, and saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So there's a couple noteworthy things there in how the Christians are persecuted in Thessalonica. One is that we hear about their reputation, and that's, I think, noteworthy that Paul and the other Christians have a reputation. Now, again, look how far we are from Jerusalem, how far we are from where this all began. But here, these, these people who are trying to get Paul and Silas out of the city, they're able to say, these guys are known everywhere. Now, what they're going to say they're known for isn't necessarily meant to be positive, but the way we think about it, think about what this means. What are they known for? They're known for turning the world upside down, which is language for revolution. And in the Roman Empire, 
you don't want revolution, you want peace. You want peace at, at all costs. And so if there are whispers of revolution, there's usually going to be a Roman army that comes in to make sure that revolution is no longer the language that you're speaking, but instead peace, submission to the Roman rule. So the charge against Paul and Silas, this Christian message, is turning the world upside down. How do you think their message could be found guilty of this charge? What is it about their message that might cause people to say, you're inciting revolution, you are turning the world on its head? What are some things that were a part of the Christian message that would have left it open to that charge, do you think? Okay, number one, not worshiping Caesar. So they're going to get to that when they say they're teaching that there's another king, that there is another Caesar, another emperor, and that's Jesus. And so that's treason right there. So yeah, that is turning the rules upside down where everybody's supposed to recognize Caesar's the number one authority. Okay, so that's one way their message is turning the world upside down. Other ways? Okay, yeah, so from this polytheistic world where there are all sorts of gods and we don't care if you worship your own god, but allow other people to worship theirs as well, or at least don't say, sorry, those other gods don't exist, there's, a, there's only one god and it's our god. Yeah, that's, that is certainly a message that does not sit well in a world that is full of temples temples to other gods, other worship, other holidays, and you Jews, now Christians, say all of that is bunk. Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. And with that is going to become how that affects not just theology and worship, but that affects everyday life. So commerce is affected by religion. Uh, their calendar, like I said, is affected by religion. It's all kind of dictated. They have their own special holidays. Um, social rules are affected by that. Uh, who could participate in some of the, 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 the Roman um, and Greek religions? Some of them were specifically for men. Some of them were specifically for women. And so, again, you're, you're upsetting that distinction as well, that this is open for everybody. We talked about the problem that the Jews had among themselves, that, that Jews were one part of the world, Gentiles was everybody else, and how problematic it was that now they were learning that Jews and Gentiles both can be united. Well, it wasn't just Jews that have these ideas about you know groups of people. Everybody had their own class or, or racial, you know, preferences, discrimination. In this world, Jews were pretty looked down upon. They were pretty low on the totem pole. And so for people now to be associated with Jews, because again, on the outside, Jews and Christians might have looked the same to people that didn't know all of the distinctions, but these Jews slash Christians are now bringing in people that are Greeks, that are men, that are women, that are young, that are old, that are from the upper class and the lower class, and that that's upsetting the social order. And social order and social stratification is a really big deal in the ancient world. 
Um, think about uh, in India, the caste system, right? Where people, you're born into a specific part of society and to try to, you know, move up, that, that's against the rule. You know, you are this and that's all you'll always be. This message uh, of the gospel is breaking all distinctions and all barriers and saying that we are one in Christ. That's, that's a pretty big deal. Other, other thoughts, ways that this gospel message is turning the world upside down? May have affected their demeanor, just that they're be more forgiving, mm-hmm. less cutthroat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you think about when when um, people were coming, people were people were coming to John and saying, you know, what what must I do now that that I've received this baptism of repentance? And he would tell them, you know, okay, you're you're a soldier. You you can still be a soldier, but stop beating down people, shaking them down for you know extra uh, money, using using that power, and for tax collectors and, and others as well. So yeah, they could still be in their same role, their same place in society, but all of a sudden, you're different. What what's a, what's going on here? And we would think, well, that's good. It's good, but again, in their world, it's very conservative. So change is usually not a good thing. You just want things to kind of stay the same. I know if you're on the lower class, you you don't you're not a fan of that. But top-down governments they want things to stay the same, and so anybody to to kind of wreck that is is a troublemaker. So their cause is is pretty generic here. They know the right words to say in order to get the officials on their side, that is the Jews that are bringing forth these charges. Just say that they're starting a revolution. But what I'm saying is I don't think they were just saying this. I think Paul really did have this reputation that people were talking about him and his ministry because what have we seen so far in the other places that he's traveled? People are always following him around and he might go to a new city, but then the word gets out, oh, did you hear Paul moved over to that city? And then those people from the city uh, that he was just in, they'll come into that city and they'll chase him out again. And Jews, because Jews were not well-liked, I think they were a little hypersensitive on this. They did not want any greater spotlight shown on themselves as was happening when when Paul and Silas, the Christian message was, was coming in here. And more and more people were listening and more and more people were looking at the Jews because Jews already were kind of the dogs of society. And now they're going to get blamed for what the Christians are doing. And so they just, they want to stop that altogether. Um, their, their jealousy is probably one of, yeah, we're jealous that Paul and Silas are, are, they have a fair hearing that, that Gentiles are listening to them because they would never listen to us. Uh, not, not when the first thing we talk about needing them to undergo is circumcision. Uh, they're like, nope, sorry, we'll, we'll do something else. But here it is in Thessalonica. So the people in the city, they all hear this and they're disturbed when they hear these things. And so when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's not clear what that 
is talking about, if that's a legal thing or if it's bribery. Um, but the gist of it seems to be that the Jason and his household, they, um, they recognize that there's, there's nothing they can do or say to get out of this situation. And so as a way, not only to protect themselves, this is not purely self-serving, but also to protect Paul. Remember, they didn't, they don't just turn Paul over and say, Oh, you don't want us. You want Paul, the bad guy. We'll tell you where he is. So what it is, what seems happens is that they provide an amount of money that I think is kind of like a guarantee of here, take this money. And if Paul isn't out of town in a week, you know, it's, it's like reverse bail. Um, then, then you can take us instead. But for now, here's a, a safety deposit. We'll make sure that Paul and, he gets out of town and, and stops causing trouble here. That seems to be what is going on. So I think it's, it is a legal thing rather than simple, simply like sending a bribe, like leave us alone here. We'll give you a little bit of money, but it's, it's unclear. Luke, Luke doesn't give us much to go on, but that's what happens. So they give that deposit and then the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to another city called Berea. So Paul and Silas, they're taken out of Thessalonica. Again, not so much that Paul and Silas decide that this is too much for them. It's rather the brothers there, the Christians, they, they send them away. They're like, you gotta go. If you stay here, they're gonna get you just like they tried to do at Philippi. So they go to Berea and same story. They go to a Jewish synagogue, but this lovely note, the Jews were more noble here in Berea than those in Thessalonica. What's that mean? Well, it means that they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So two big contrasts. One is that Paul would meet in with the Jews in Thessalonica on Sabbath days. For three Sabbaths, he was teaching them. It's not that he wasn't teaching the other days, but Luke's very specific. Like That's kind of the forum that he was given. But with the Bereans, what's happening? Every single day. Every single day, they allow Paul to come and to teach. And they're, one, not simply rejecting the message, as it seemed like some of the Jews did uh, in Thessalonica. But two, they're also not like, oh yeah, yeah, this, this, this is good. I, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. You're, you're, you're saying everything that I like and I'll, I'll believe it. They were critical. They were examining the scriptures themselves. Okay, Paul, you're bringing in this message that it seems a little uncomfortable, it's a little unorthodox, that the Messiah is supposed to suffer and die. And you say that that is in the scriptures. We're not going to take you at your word. We're going to look ourselves. We're going to challenge these statements and see if what you are teaching is really God's word. Because if it's not, get out of town. But if it is, you got a good point. We're going to listen to you. So the Bereans, they're giving more time, more time and study, and they're looking and listening. They're listening to what Paul says, but they're also looking into God's word. Um, not taking Paul as this, you know, he can do no wrong messenger, but instead it's, is this what God's word says? If so, we'll be behind it, but if not, uh, we can't accept it. 
So as a result of that, many of them believed, as well as a few Greek, not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from, here it is, Thessalonica, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way. So once again, the brothers there, the Christians, are Paul, you've got to go. This just keeps happening. You're not safe. We're not safe. We got, you got to go. So Paul is haphazardly, it sometimes seems, through this missionary journey from one city to the next. And he doesn't necessarily have a set agenda of how long he's going to stay in each place. But what is happening more and more often is that the Christians there are saying, get out of town. It's not safe for you to remain here any longer. It's not that Paul himself is like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm starting to be uncomfortable. It's starting to be scary here. I need to go. Sometimes it seems like Paul would extend his stay despite that opposition. It's the Christians there that are pushing him off. The interesting thing here, though, is that Paul is sent off on his way, but Silas and Timothy remained. So they're still evidently under the radar. They don't attract as much attention as Paul, um, which again shows that Paul's position, he probably is the primary speaker, the one that's really uh, trained and talented and in your face. Not that Silas and Timothy don't have these gifts, but they're able to go a little bit more under the radar. They can stay and their lives are not in jeopardy in the way that Paul's is. But from here, he does get a little bit of space. So he had been just wandering, not wandering, it was with purpose, but going on the Roman road from city to city. And so it's pretty easy to track his path. But from Berea, he sails down to Athens. So now there's quite a degree of separation from him and what's been going on. It's kind of like this is a new chapter to the same journey where he gets to set off and do things without everybody breathing down his back about what you just did in that last city. And when he goes to Athens, he's going to a huge, hugely important city. I don't want to say huge in the sense that Athens had a uh, monstrous population. Uh, Athens has a glorious past. Uh, By this time, it is not necessarily a major, major city. It is known rather as a major city because of the reputation that it has had throughout all of history. That this is the birthplace of democracy. Uh, Plato and Socrates, they, the Athenians, they're the ones that beat back the barbarians, not just the Athenians, they teamed up with others, but they, they beat back that Asian horde, um, that came to, uh, attack Greece and subdue them. So they have a huge reputation as this culturally important place, um, in philosophy, um, sort of in religion, but in politics. And so Paul goes here, probably, you know, this is, this is a place anybody would want to go to in the ancient world just to see it. And he goes, and at first it sounds like he's just a tourist, right? He's just walking around Athens and he's looking around and he's just checking in the site. He probably doesn't have a um, direct in, like somebody that he knows here. He's just kind of starting from scratch and he's on his own. 
Silas and Timothy aren't with them because they're still back in Berea. So he's just checking things out. And that's when his time in Athens starts to turn. Because as he's checking things out in Athens, what is his impression of the city? It's full of idols, okay? And what does that what does that cause him to feel? He was he was distressed. Okay, so just walking around the city causes a reaction. We would think the reaction is like you're just in awe. Um, if you've ever been to some of these ancient sites and just see some of the structures, even though today most of them aren't standing, but just you know, you see what they would have looked like. And in that place, you're just, you're kind of in awe, like that people did all of this, that they had the technology, the ingenuity, the smarts, the materials, all of that. That could be a reaction that you have upon visiting this place. But the reaction that he has is, is like disgust. He is vexed. He is distressed because when he sees all of this, he's not seeing architectural beauty. He's seeing idolatry, the first commandment. It is rife in Athens, and it really bugs him. So what's he do about it? Okay. He sets up a committee. So he's going to the first place, which we said is, you know, he always goes to the, to the synagogue when he can, but he's also going to the marketplace. And in the Jewish, uh, sorry, the Greek world, um, in the Jewish world, the big place to kind of go to be where all of the action is usually is at the city gates. That's where a lot of, you know, business happens. Uh, that's where the elders kind of hang out at the city gates. But in the Greek world, the marketplace, kind of there in the middle of the city, that's where you want to be. That's where uh, the, the philosophers will hang out. That's where politics and trade and, you know, it is all happening there. And so he goes right into the thick, not of just the Jewish community, but that community in Athens, the Greeks. And he's there in the marketplace. Um, and who happens to be there? There's, like I said, this is where a lot of philosophers hang out. So there's different kinds of philosophers. There's Epicureans and Stoics. And there's a lot to learn there about, you know, what each of them believe. But they're kind of on the spectrum, kind of like opposites. Stoics are known for the sense of duty that they teach and instill in people who believe in that philosophy, that the most important thing is to just do your duty, to be in line with the laws of nature. And so even if that's uncomfortable, even if that makes you not popular, stay and do your duty. There, there's a lot that sounds commendable about that. We, we might think in our own world, if only we had people who had that same thought about the importance of duty and responsibility, boy, this, this world would be a, a very different place. Versus the Epicureans, who are all about pleasure, pursuing pleasure in, in all of its forms. Happiness. It's all about happiness. That's the goal of your life to be happy. So do whatever you need to do to be happy. That could uh, be in a lot of sensuality, uh, sexual reckless living, but there are also more enlightened kind of Epicureans that realize, wait a second, just doing everything my body says, 
doesn't lead to happiness. And so you have to pursue happiness in such a way that you don't say yes to every pleasure out there, but you also have to measure and weigh the consequences of that. So anyways, Epicureans and Stoics, they're very different philosophies, very different philosophers. They had their own disagreements, but now Paul is kind of here in the middle of them, kind of able to play the devil's advocate on both sides to say, yeah, well, what about that? Or, you know, they're saying this, what about that? And that kind of gets him an audience, but it also gets him in a little bit of trouble. So as he is able to say some of his things, um, here's what people are saying about him. What does this babbler wish us uh, wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So there's a lot of different thoughts about this guy. Um, some say he was a babbler. Uh, the, the word here in Greek, it has to... Um, it kind of has, has this connotation of he just picks ideas up from different sources and he uses them indiscriminately. So you can kind of understand where this would come from because he might, Paul might have been talking with the Stoics and said, I, I like what you're saying here. I, I agree with that, but here's, here's my opinion on it. And he, you know, kind of shifts it. But to the Epicureans, he might be saying, ah, oh, yeah, you talk about being happy. I, I understand this, this concept of being blessed. And let me tell you what, what that means. And so the Stokes and the Epicureans are probably like, wait a second. He, he's taking some of what you're saying, but he's also taking some of what I'm saying. He's not a Stoic. He's not an Epicurean. Who, who is this guy? They want to try to figure out what it is that Paul is bringing to the table. But then there are others who are saying, he's talking a lot about Jesus, and it seems that this Jesus is a God, but he's also talking a lot about resurrection. And the this is not very clear in English, but um, in, in Greek, the gods were often connected with personifications of, of qualities. So for instance, the goddess Athena is, is connected with wisdom. So if you think about wisdom, you're thinking about the goddess Athena. And so as, Jesus, as Paul is talking a lot about resurrection and using that word, the Greek word for that, again, they don't understand all of the background of Jews and of Paul as a Christian. They're trying to put it into slots that they understand. They hear him talking about this and they must think this is another God. This resurrection God raised Jesus from the dead. Because they have stories like that where gods will, you know, go to the underworld and then be, be raised up or that people will. So they're trying to make sense of it. And as you read it, you're like, it doesn't sound like they are getting much because there's a lot of confusion. So they decide, okay, we, this guy is causing a lot of confusion. Let's just listen to him. We'll give him an audience so that we understand what it is that he's saying. And so they invite him to Areopagus, which is Greek for Mars Hill. Um, if you ever go to Athens, uh, there's a hill that's called Mars Hill, the hill of the god Mars. And on that hill, uh, it's the Acropolis is the center of the city. It's this, this big hill in the city that, that has the Parthenon. Uh, that's, that's kind of the 
what, what you see in the city is the focal point. Uh, when we went to Greece for our honeymoon, we, we went up to the Parthenon. And uh, as we're kind of there and you can see the city around, uh, I think you pointed it out that like, hey, there's, there's people standing over there in that place, you know, and there's, there isn't a big temple or anything. So like, why, why are people over there? And uh, me not having done enough homework or whatever, like, I, I don't know. It must be something important if people are there. Well, it turns out that that was Mars Hill. Uh, and if you go to Mars Hill, there's basically nothing there, but there's a sign that says Mars Hill, where Paul, you know, gave this sermon. But you finish it. Yeah, it's it's. But but yeah, so th this is what happens when you plan your own trip. You don't always get the highlights. Uh, you miss things. But here's my defense of that. <laughs> So Mars Hill, Areopagus, it is the name of a place, but it also becomes the name of the people that meet there. So the people that meet there, they were called the Areopagus. And it's a council of, of elders, of politicians. It seems to have a lot of cultural significance to the Athenians. Um, maybe not necessarily legal. It's, it's hard to say because uh, it's, it's changed a lot over the years. And so the question that comes is, did Paul really go up to Mars Hill and were these people still meeting there? Or when it says that Paul gives his speech before the Areopagus, does that mean before this body of people who now might have met someplace else. So they didn't necessarily meet on that hill anymore, and Paul didn't necessarily give that speech from that place. We're not exactly sure. There's one maybe tell here, because it says in verse 22, um, as he's invited to the Areopagus, it says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of, of Athens, and it goes on. So he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus here seems to refer to in the midst of people. And they may not have been meeting. They may have been meeting down in the marketplace, um, the Agora, which we did go to the Agora. And so, um, yeah. We did, yeah. So Mars Hill being a place, the more important point here, whether they were actually meeting on that hill, is that he was meeting in front of these, these elders, these uh, important people, and he has the chance to give his defense of the faith. He has his chance to give an explanation of what it is that he's teaching. And his speech here could spend a lot of time, but I kind of bullet pointed it so you can go home and, and read through. Kind of the bullet points here, of what it is that he covers about the uh, about uh, the the faith that he's teaching, and it isn't that he goes back to the Hebrew scriptures and explains all of that stuff because again this audience doesn't understand that. Instead, his main points he talks about how God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of life, the ruler of all the nations, the father of human beings, the judge of the world. So he talks about the one God that he worships is, is the sole fulfiller of all of these different rules. And that alone is a very clear message that shows a distinction between what he is teaching and what they believe. 
because they believe that there are a lot of different gods that are involved in all of these different processes. And, you know, that's why we have so many uh, idols and temples and, and all of that stuff. But he's saying there's only one. And as he starts to talk about Jesus and he gets into the resurrection, that's the one that really causes, I think, this meeting to fall apart. I'm not sure that Paul's speech was over when he simply talks about Jesus as the judge of the world. I, I think that he probably had more to say. But this resurrection thing, it, it really gets to them. And this goes deep into their philosophical tradition that because of Plato, the Greeks had this very firm uh, idea that body and soul were two different things. And the most important thing is not the body. The most important thing is the soul. And so death is not something to be afraid of because death is finally the release from the prison of the body of that soul, that soul that is eternal. So our souls have always existed. They will always exist. Death is is freedom, freedom for our souls, and we should celebrate it. We should look forward to it. And for a lot of Christians, they're like, yeah, I basically believe that too, that our, our, you know, our souls go to heaven. This is all a really good thing. But the idea of the resurrection is not in line with that way of thinking. We believe that God created us body and soul as a union that those two things are meant to be together. And that what happens at our death is a division, a separation where our souls are torn apart from our bodies. And that's not, in God's eyes, a good thing because that's not how he wants us to be. It's not how he created us to be. He didn't just create our souls and is just happy with that. He wants body and soul. So when Jesus rises from the dead, he rises as Jesus, as Jesus who walked in this world, not as now a ghost, as just a spirit, but body and soul, a body that has now been glorified. And we live in the promise that we will one day have those glorified bodies too. That's the resurrection, that our bodies and souls will be reunited again, that God's good creation, he doesn't just let die and that's it, but that creation that was very good will be again one day very good. And so Paul is speaking about that, that resurrection. And that is something that's even more difficult. Like there are enlightened minds among the Greeks that were sort of gradually headed towards monotheism. They could kind of understand like, isn't it good or doesn't it make sense that ultimately behind everything, there has to be one, one cause, one thing that kind of started it all. And that one thing, that would be the supreme God. So they're already kind of moving that way. But this idea of resurrection, that's against just about every philosophical group there. And so they're ready to chase him out. That's why I don't think he had a chance to kind of finish where, where he might have went with this. But um, instead, that kind of marks the end of his time there. Uh, it says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, this is verse tw uh, 32, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, as in Areopagus, somebody from that council became a believer, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Okay, so Athens, it seems, is kind of a 
a mixed su success. He's not like thrown into jail like in some of the other places. His life isn't in jeopardy, it seems. There are people who are curious. That's one of the things the Athenians were known for, their curiosity. Yes, he's teaching something new, but um, let's hear him out. Let's, let's hear what this message is. And we may find that it's, it's not so bad. Um, Socrates, in their own history, was charged with teaching new beliefs, teaching uh, about new gods. And Socrates' life ended because the, the Athenians said, this is against what we believe, this, these new ideas. And so Socrates is sentenced to death. But his followers, they continue to teach the ideas of Socrates. They continue to challenge and open them up to these curiosities. An open mind isn't always a bad thing. Here, Paul is able to use that open mind to bring the gospel message. All right, we're going to have to stop there. I didn't get to Corinth, but we go from the intellectual world in Athens to the uh, kind of commercial and a little bit unseemly world of Corinth. If you've ever read the epistles to the Corinthians, you know that Paul really had his hands full in dealing with those people. So we'll find out what he encounters there in uh, the last part of the secondary journey. And when he goes from the secondary journey, there's one verse where the second missionary journey ends and the third missionary journey begins. So the transition will be quick when we move from the second missionary journey to the third. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.